You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Wow, Bracken. I, I didn't know that my co-host was one a liar and two as fit as he is right now. Tell me more. I mean, th- there's a lot of directions we can go with this, but the first is irony. Just on Friday's long run episode, which we we recorded Thursday, we talked about the fact that like our conversations are genuine. We're not mm-hmm. withholding information. We say what we mean and we mean what we say and we... We're truthful people. And then I go ahead and backtrack on all of that 24 hours later, 36 hours later, and I race. After swearing up and down, I will not go to City Field. I don't think backtrack is a strong enough word. I would say stab in the back. I backstabbed. You backstabbed. You did not. I want to pass the buck right away. Uh huh. I got... Many messages from listeners, from friends, and then a talk from Lisa within 12 hours of the episode dropping on Tuesday that said, here's why it's not smart for me to go race and why I won't do it. I got probably a dozen messages saying, I get what you're saying and here's why you should race. A a couple of my buddies, uh, Les Collin said I should. Uh, Lisa said I should. Uh, a guy that I don't have any in-face time with, but Jordan McDougal messaged me and said, hey, I just did the exact same thing. I had the same mindset and I told myself I wouldn't race until I was fully back and followed my whole progression. He had some injuries and then he tore his calf after I tore my calf. Hmm. So I had reached out and said, hey, like it's, it feels super frustrating, but it comes back quick. You'll be fine. Well, he returned the favor and said, I am so grateful that I did race because now I think he got a, a savage podium and maybe a Spartan. I'm not sure, but he said, I'm so pumped up going into the off season, but more than that, I'm confident now that when my next training plan comes all the way through to f- fruition, that I will be in contention, not just that I hope I could be. And mm-hmm. so I had a lot of messages like that telling me, throwing my own words back in my face. Hey, you always tell us. None of us really do this to to retire off of, to sign a million dollar contract. We do it because we love it. Go do what you love. And people made a lot of compelling arguments, Kirk. So I blame the running public for me racing. Yeah, pointing the finger is always admirable. I point all the fingers. You know, the worst part about this was is, so you called me on Thursday. We recorded the, I think we recorded our episode on Wednesday, right? Or was it Thursday? I don't know. Order of events are murky. It is murky, but you called and not like it's a typical for you to call, but you called, didn't leave a voicemail. I called at night, which I usually don't do. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, and then you explained to me your thought process and you, and we talked about the pros and the cons list and we had a nice like half hour conversation about it. I was on a spin bike. Did you know that? No, I, I think you must've been zone one for sure. I was cooling down after my 
my time trial workout to see if I was fit enough to race. Yeah, I didn't know that. So obviously you were, uh, you're, you know, taking the cool down easy. But, and by the end of that damn conversation, Bracken, I had convinced myself to give you the green light. So you straight up asked me, should I or should I not race after we discussed everything? And I was like, damn it. I think it makes more sense to race than to not race. Mm-hmm. And so even myself, so I feel like a little bit of a backstabber, um, was with the running public. Point your finger at me too. I uh, I will. I, I understand why you did. And when we chatted it out, I think we should just give the listeners a quick summation as to why, because we should practice what we preach and follow our own processes. But um, in this instance, it actually made sense for you to race. And I believe that. So I support you. So what was the thought process? So people can understand, maybe use a little bit of this themselves. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just start with how I called you. I called you and I explained this to you. I said, hey, I just got done running a stadium sim time trial because Lisa told me to go do one to see if I'm fit because she said I should race. And I said why everyone said I should race. And then I told you how I did the time trial. And you asked me one very good question. Mm-hmm. You said, what is your actual goal? Like, what is the purpose of this rebuild? Is it to rebuild? Is it for the Tennessee mile? Is it for next? Like, what What do you actually, like, what's your biggest goal? And mm-hmm. I said, is to be relevant next year. And you said, then go race. Exactly. That's all you needed to say. You said, this does not change next year one way or the other. It's a short race. It doesn't change anything. Only for the better will it change next year. And we said, it does not change next year as long as you follow the script this year, meaning mm-hmm. the race won't impact your training leading into Tennessee Mile. Tennessee Mile, you will still take your recovery afterwards as prescribed, and you will still then begin your build for next year. And the race didn't impact that. It just subbed out one Saturday workout for another. That's all it did. And you probably said that four or five times on the phone. You mm-hmm. reiterated, listen, I think you should race, but... It cannot change anything. Like you're back to work on Monday. You still have to take your off season after Tennessee mile. You are not allowed to like pivot and go after things like you do it as long as it changes nothing. And that's exactly what I needed to hear. So I, I got off the bike and I bought a flight. What was there any other parts of your thought process? Like, cause you can justify either side of the coin. You could talk yourself into either decision, right? Like anybody can do that. We're all master puppeteers of our own lives. So like any other decision-making processes? I don't know. No, there weren't, but because it was atypical, usually I'm trying to convince myself it's a good idea to race because I love to race. This time I had actually believed that it's just not worth it to go race. Why? I'm in a good spot. I'm enjoying training. I'm healthy. I get one last hill workout in before my six hour ultra. And this is good. Like why compromise it for something egotistical and trivial, like keep my decade long podium streak alive. Like That doesn't matter. That's not going to be on my tombstone. No one cares. I do. And then everyone else, not everyone else, but many people said the opposite. And I was thinking, should I let that excitement changed me. So I was, I called you and I said, listen, I'm looking for you to tell me not to, like, I'm looking for you to be the voice of reason. And I was, I was leaning towards hoping you would say, don't race. I was actually not like craving the race anymore. I'd come to terms with the fact that I shouldn't race. 
So it was, I mean, at the end of the day, it was you and Lisa. Everyone else was nice to hear that from. It was nice to feel the support. But when you and Lisa both were on the same side, I thought, yeah, why not? I'll just, I'll regret if I don't go for it. If I don't go and race, I'm guaranteed to miss the podium. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, which is a bit of a fallacy, but it's also logically true. And I had that sneaking suspicion that I was more fit than my training says I should be. I just, I think I told you this and I told some other people this, but two weeks ago, I just felt like I turned a corner. Running started feeling right again. And I started, everything just felt like it was clicking. So I knew I hadn't done any quality work, but I just felt good. Yes. So, so I, I felt comfortable buying a flight and going out there and it's in my wheelhouse. I think that's the biggest thing. It's one thing to go to Indiana and run a 13 mile trail race when I wasn't in shape to race six miles, but to go redline for 25 minutes with constant change of direction, never running straight for more than 200 meters. Yeah. That's just two in my wheelhouse. I can, I can fudge the system a little in a race like that. Well, I just think like, you know, if, if this doesn't cloud the big picture for you, for example, a lot of my athletes want to still race these next three months, but it was under the stipulation like, okay, you're allowed to race. As long as you understand, it's not going to change the work I'm prescribing for you so you don't lose sight of the big picture. And if we can agree upon that, first of all, then we have ourselves a handshake deal, right? So mm -hmm. first of all, you check that box. And I know you're the same with your athletes. And then second, like this doesn't change. Like we preach this recovery period at the end of a long season or a long build doesn't change the fact that you are still going to take this and then sort of turn the page and start fresh regardless. So like you didn't compromise either of the big two boxes to be checked. And then third, the only thing you really have to worry about is injury, which is a big deal, but we train so we can race, right? Like that is a risk we have to take anytime we tow a start line. So not wanting to get injured, is really not a valid excuse not to race because we risk that every time we step out the door for a workout or every time we do anything uh, yeah. of value. So like you throw that one out, right? Because we can't always race afraid. We can't train afraid. So that one's gone. So all we have is two boxes checked in the positive column that says like, go for it, right? And so mm -hmm. like drum roll, how'd it go? How'd you feel? All of that. I mean, I have an idea, but we haven't chatted it out at length yet. I mean, the cutting to the chase, I took second place and I, I kept the podium streak going from that perspective. It was a success. Congratulations. Thank you. Thursday night. I did a call with Rich Ryan and his torque athletes, the obstacle racing collaboration. Part of what Rich and I had talked about when he was mentoring me and doing that, like coaching call is that I could return the favor by chatting with his athletes from time to time. And so we did one on racing in Abu Dhabi. I've raced over there twice and just they'd bounce ideas and questions off me. And we did a Q and a, and at the very end of it, was that a podcast recording or like an off mic thing? No, just off mic zoom call. Annie Doobie, Sean Stevens, whale, I believe yep. his name is Logan Broadbent. There might've been one other. Anyway, those are his athletes who are going over there to, to race world championships. But at the very end Rich said, Hey, I just signed up for a stadium race. <laughs> what shoes would you wear? <laughs> and I looked at him and I thought, there's only one other stadium other than this, and it's in California. There's no way he's going to that. I said, are you going mm -hmm. to City? So yeah. I said, I'm going to City too. And we both had that look like, shoot, neither of us expected to have to race each other. Mm -hmm. So right away, I, I knew Rich is fit, and he's there. He had just run 1450 for three miles 
mm-hmm. and one OCR stars. So he's in wad shape. So that was, it was almost nice knowing I don't have to worry about going out and trying to win this thing. I just have to go out and fight for a spot. And next spoiler alert, Rich is not the person who beat you. No. So another great remember reminder that that's why they they run the race is because it's not given mm-hmm. away on paper. Well, I, I not to discredit you or your fitness or your build, but I was shocked to see you beat Rich because he's yeah. been consistent and a monster this year, setting records, kind of training how I would want somebody to train getting ready for a stadium race. And yeah. you haven't. You've been training for a six-hour trail race. So the fact that you finished in front of him just made me oddly proud. I was proud too. I told Lisa before, I said, I don't want to sound defeatist because I feel like I'm mentally tough right now. I feel like mm-hmm. I have that to some extent back, but I don't know if I can really beat Rich, but I'm excited to go race him Yeah, because he's, he's so fast and he's powerful and we've seen he can do the station work. So I told her, here's what's going to happen. I am going to be the best stair runner there. I've been running up skills and on the Nordic track at 30%, 35% for the last nine weeks. I know I can do that. My downstairs are going to be good because I've been running down ski hills. I know I can do that. My flats are going to suffer and my stations and transitions are going to kind of blow me up because I haven't been doing any of that stuff. And we start the race. We start right up the first climb, which was immediate, maybe five strides. And we were up a stairwell, bottom to top of the stadium. And my quads were blown up instantly. And for the entire race, I could not run stairs. Hmm. I could roll the flats. I nailed every transition. I flew on the ins and outs and I could not get my uphill legs working. It was the most perplexing thing. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out what was going on. So the one thing I thought I could count on was gone. And the other things felt way better than they should have. Why? If you have to figure out why. I think because I've been staying high end aerobic on all my climbs. So I switched to power hiking anytime I can't run. And on a uphill, even at 30, 35% incline, you can trot uphill. Yeah. But you can't trot upstairs. Need those big, powerful strides. Yeah. Yeah. You either have to run or bound up them or you have to walk and power hike. There isn't an in-between uphill stair running. And City Field has steeper stairs. They don't have the longer, wider. And so you couldn't like be in a rhythm. You had to put out and that putting out blew up my quads immediately. So it was just exact opposite of the race I expected to have happen. But I was so pleasantly surprised at how I felt throughout the whole thing on my running. Well, what that tells you is you blew up a little bit early and were like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. But then guess what kicks in, Bracken? Stay power, which is what you've been working. Like ultimately, that underlying fitness still shows itself through, which you got reduced to pretty early, but like pretty good. So I want to know, did all three of you in the top three, because you guys, you three had a pretty big time gap on the rest of the field, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, right? Um, Did you all run clean? Everyone ran clean. Everyone ran clean. So that takes care of that asterisks wondering if Rich was behind you because of like a failure. So he wasn't, which is great. On the going up that first staircase, two flights up, I felt my legs. And I actually may have misrepresented that. I never blew my legs up. I felt them starting to, and I just shut it down. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, this is what it is. I, you and I talked. I can't tip over in the first half of this race. I've done no anaerobic work. If I tip, I'm gone. So I just backed off. I power hiked up the entire first climb 
with like a little shuffle jog at times, but I just, I cranked on the railing with my arms. I just pulled myself up. I did everything I could to save my quad. So I got to the top in like seventh place, probably of the first climb. And I could have swore rich one around me, but it was like his doppelganger, I guess. Hmm. So we got to the first station. We got to the top of the stairs, ran across a long section of bleachers, and then moved into heavy jump rope. So you have to get in there, put a rubber band around your ankles, and then do 15 reps with a weighted jump rope. I came out of that first. <laughs> so I went in like sixth or seventh and came out first. And I just had this smile on my face like, all right, I'm just going to be old man Crocker this whole race. Just I'm going to steal seconds on every transition. I maybe haven't done a stadium race in two years, but I think I've done 22 stadium races. Like I just have more time doing these than anyone else. So I, I'm just going to rely on that. Watching you flow. In and again, I've only watched you. I've only run one stadium race and watching you from behind is a thing of beauty. Your transitions in and out, like you move like an athlete through that stuff. It's just like suddenly you're in and you're gone and you made up five or 10 seconds and you can't really see where or how it happened, but it did. Mm. I remember seeing that simple, like hand release pushups, um, low crawl, little things like in and out. Like we, we dissect, um, we refer back to it a lot. Two years ago, Ryan Atkins race in Jacksonville sprint where he was in and out of everything so quickly. And he just snuck seconds on everybody. And that's how he yeah. won the race. You're like that, but almost dialed up even more as far as like obstacle transitions go. And it's, I was actually thinking maybe there'd be some rust to bust off in that regard. Cause you haven't been training that style, but here it was falling back into place. Now I think at my best, I may be dialed up a notch from that, but, but I wasn't this weekend, but part of it was, I, I was trying to save energy everywhere I could. But part of it is that I, because of the transitions, I got to take the upstairs easier. So I was able to focus on everything else, but it just, I think the first station, the jump rope gave me the rust buster back. Like if I had lost time there, I think that would have set the tone for the race. But because I did it well, my body just said, oh yeah, we know how to do this. Think about that momentum shift just mentally. It's huge. Yeah. Where else can you pass six people without running? And probably exerting less effort on that station than they did as well. Yeah, I think so. And then you start to get that panic, like, oh shoot, I'm behind while you're doing your reps. And you maybe, it's like kind of like hurdling where someone gets past and you see them start to run the person next to them's hurdle form instead of their own. You break your rhythm. There's some of that that happens, so. Anyways, we got off that, ran to the sandbag. I picked up mine first with a string of guys right behind me. There was no gap yet. And the guy who ended up winning, Isaac Lacey, blew right around me with the sandbag and put probably 20 to 25 seconds on me on the sandbag carry. Now, who is this gentleman? I don't know much about Isaac Lacey, and I was very impressed with his result. Well, he won Citizens Bank Park a couple weeks ago. He's been around for a while, but he's in a different level of fitness this year. And he's legit. He's probably two or three inches taller than me. Hmm. Bigger frame, but still lean. And he just looks like a big, powerful athlete who also looks like a runner. He doesn't look like a, a football player trying to run. He looks like a runner with power. Hmm. Now, he'd be the first to tell you he had a sandbag that had a hole in it. It was one of those. So he even apologized to me as he went past me with the sandbag. Hmm. He said, I'm so sorry. This thing's light. And is it's... it's dripping out the back. Nothing you can do. And I told him the same thing. As he went by, I said, I did that same thing. I've had it happen twice. That's just luck of the draw. There's nothing you can do about it. But he put probably 25 seconds on me there and it stayed there for probably the next almost two miles. That same thing, that same conversation happened with me 
don't even know if you'll remember Mark Botris and Big Bear a couple of years ago. I got one of those sandbags only time. And I went by him and I was like, I am sorry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, go with it, go with it. And so I went with it as I was passing him. It, it, what do you do? What do you do? No. And there, what do you, in a, in a it's going to be a 25 minute race. Are you going to tell him go back and choose another one? No, no. I did it in Minnesota and I did it in Asheville. I had a sandbag that was just lighter and I knew it. Mm-hmm. And you can't apologize. It's he, I could tell he was better with the sandbag than I was anyway. And after the race, he he apologized again at the finish line. And I was like, not, not a word. Listen, you yep. beat me by, it ended up being a minute. So a 25 second sandbag carry, the race just would have been a little closer. He was, no one was beating him that day. So if, as if you're listening, you can stop apologizing. You won that race regardless of what happened there. Good job, Isaac. But I say that to say like the setup, we came out of that and he was 25 seconds ahead, which in a stadium is out of sight. And then I had a group of four behind me, Rich and three other guys. And then they kind of just pursued the rest of the race. I just kept trying to chip away and get out of sight. And eventually I was 25 to 30 seconds up on them, 30 down from Isaac. And we ran that way all the way until the farmer's carry. And then he put another 30 seconds on me on the farmer's carry. Man can carry. Yeah. And that's the kind of the proofs in the pudding there. If I would have run him back down on the farmer's carry, we could have said, yeah, the, the sandbag was a fluke, but he put the same time gap on me on the next carry and his were legitimately heavy. It was probably a quarter mile farmer's carry. It was nasty. I, I love that. It's one of your proclaimed weaknesses, that farmer's carry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, okay. So we took second place. And then if we had to just like cut to uh, takeaways, what would be your takeaways as far as like what your, your build and fitness did for this race and like what you'll take moving forward? I never faded. The last several sections of flat running downstairs, upstairs, I was running the same pace I was running at the beginning. So the, the long runs, the long hill workouts, they were staying power. I was aware of the fact that I couldn't just rip up any section, but I could work at a relatively high-end output. I would say threshold. I could stay right at threshold, and I never faded in my pace at threshold. So kind of weird to run a stadium at threshold effort. Impossible, some would say. If I went any harder, I started to blow up, but I was able to stay right at that. So I never faded, and that was big. But all the stair work was was easy going down the the running down a, a black diamond steepness ski hill for the last nine months or nine weeks made going downstairs feel normal so i didn't take any pounding going downstairs a lot of the times you get to the bottom of a long stairwell or set of bleachers and your quads are full i get to the bottom and feel ready to run again so that was a mm-hmm. i don't know if i've ever had that in a stadium before so moving forward that's something to keep in mind that moderate effort ski hill work paid off for running downstairs. It's good to know. Yeah. And the, just the staying power. I was, I was pleasantly surprised that I could hold a relatively decent effort and never blow up. And I always blow up in stadiums. It's just, I'm in the lead and I blow up or I'm not in the lead and I blow up. It's, it's just a question of where I finish, not if I blow up or not. Well, it just speaks to the power of um, threshold work and stay power and long grindy stuff because it seems like you can always race down well, right? But if you try to race up off of, let's say, a lot of short, fast stuff, it doesn't always go so well. So it's just like another reminder that threshold work is king and it translates. And the nice thing is I haven't done threshold work. I've done four in nine weeks. Well, four is better than none. 
but it's that high-end aerobic on hills, but for two and three hours, that I think has some of the same muscular benefits. On the way up those ski hills towards the top, don't tell me that you're almost hitting threshold with your heart rate sometimes. No, because I'm trying to run it at goal six-hour race pace. That's fair. So I've had four sessions where I did intentionally, but I don't know. It was, it felt better than I thought that it should have, but it it was a good reminder that I respond well to longer work. It balances my equation as an athlete. I'm a shorter, shiftier, twitchier guy. So this was, it was nice, but it highlighted a few weaknesses, but the biggest was push strength. And an interesting, Ryan Atkins made the same post. Mm-hmm. Because his pull strength's phenomenal and his push strength felt like he was dying. That's how I felt. I I struggled with the ram burpees. I struggled with things above my head. I would even consider sandbag and farmer's carry a bit of that. I just, if I was pulling something actively using my body, I was good. And outside of that, things took a lot out of me. Hand release pushups tired me more than they should have. Well, there's that thing when you're like pushing where it's like synonymous with holding your breath. Yep. And sometimes that can just tick the heart rate a little more and then those muscles fill up. Where sometimes pulling, I feel like you can breathe through a little better. And so working that is actually pretty damn important. I'm realizing more like what does it do to my cadence of my breathing as much as anything? Because once you tip over, you tip over. And I feel like it's easier to be conscious of your cadence of breathing pulling than it is pushing. And the only way to work that is to work that. And you haven't, especially with a high heart rate. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. I I got to the field at the end and on the field, which for people who haven't done one, you run the whole race. It's mostly just a stare and flat race throughout the stadium. But then at Mm -hmm. the end, you finish around the warning track. We came out of one dugout and ran around and finished in front of the other dugout. So maybe 200 meters total. And we had hand release pushups, walls, rope climb, Ram burpees and box jumps all on the field. So that's all the most taxing. Yeah, it's condensed. And I was lucky no one was next to me because hmm. I just couldn't, I couldn't work fast through the rams. So I was lucky in that regard that I had a gap because I was, I had to have had the slowest ram burpees of the top three. But you didn't need them to be quick. Couldn't have though. <laughs> there was no choice. It was, that was my pace, whether I was ahead or behind or next to someone. I was going to bleed some time there. But overall, it was super, super positive feeling. Just like what Jordan McDougal said. Now I'm excited knowing that when the next block hits, it's not, can I do this again? It's how well will I be able to do it? Yeah. It was awesome to see people. Well, I don't know if uh, if welcome back is the appropriate thing to say, but I'm going to say welcome back and congratulations on the podium. Thank you. My podium streak is longer than yours. I just want to make sure you know this. I am using COVID as a a, a, a missing year. Yours counts. Mine doesn't. Meaning you're... People can use COVID as a flex year. If you podium that year, you count it as part of your streak. If you didn't run a race that year, like I didn't run a single Spartan race because of COVID, I I flex it right out of the rotation. It's It's not a year in history. All right. How many years are you at with your flex year? With my flex, 2011 through 2021. So is that 11 years? 11 years? Yeah, 11 years of podium. But 10 because I didn't in 2020. Right. But you would have podium, so. I don't know. I got I got two knee surgeries instead. Yeah. Yeah, right? I guess that worked out. Yep. I think I'm at five because I've podium since 2017. I ran an early race in 2020, which 
got me a podium. So no, no flex needed over here other than the flex that my real streak is longer than yours. Yeah. A purist would say that I have a streak of one. I'll allow it. It was cool to see everybody. And I think I had six athletes there. It was fun to see everyone there. A lot of, a lot of running public love out there on the course. God, I love that. I wore the shirt. You're running public singlet? No, I don't have one. It's not in yet. I just wore our gray shirt over the top of a long sleeve because it was cold. Yeah, it was like in the 30s. Sneak peek. We Brackenstein ordered like three running public uh, singlet what models, we'll call it. See what we like the most. Yeah, a singlet, a sleeveless cycling base layer, and then just a long sleeve performance top. Sweet. Those should be coming in soon, shouldn't they? This week, I think. They're in Anchorage right now. They went from China to Anchorage. Natural natural transition point. Probably via Russia. They have tracking chips in them. Side note, I got to use the abbreviated warm-up because the race was a mess in the morning. Getting in the door. Registration is supposed to open at 6. Race starts at 7. Registration opened at 6.40. Rich and I stood in line chatting. We got to through the big drop at like 6.50. Went inside. We'd heard it was delayed. They usually will delay it a while. Mm-hmm. So we go inside. At 7.02, someone tells us, hey, they delayed it 15 minutes. So the race was in 13 minutes. So we probably turned around, ran out of the stadium, got our race gear on, ran back in and raced. Wow. Might be part of the reason why those legs filled up early. Certainly could be. Yeah. I was ready for that quick abbreviated warm-up like we had talked about. Yeah, you always have a plan. Got to. That's what 11 years in the game gets you, Kirk. Yeah. I mean, if you run enough Spartan races, how much is their, their schedule's always off or like there's problems, re- registration or something like you're going to run into some short warmups like here and there. So do you, uh, you have anything else you want to talk about there? Should we dive into um, today's fundamental topic? I'm done talking about me for now, but I do want to say thank you to all the support I heard out there constantly where people knew it was me not robert killian which which was exciting Mm. and a lot of people calling out the podcast awesome it was it was just a really good outpouring of support and i would say it felt better there to be to be have someone come up and talk or ask for a picture or just say hi because of the podcast than for a podium because for a podium, it's a fleeting thing. The podcast is staying power. Yeah. Like I saw what happened when I stopped making podiums, people stopped knowing who I was. And that's just the nature of sports. But so it almost felt better to have people thank us for the podcast than to say, hey, great race. I've, uh, I experienced that this year and it for sure has changed the dynamic of showing up to races for the better. It showed me that I'm going to be just fine being content when, if and when I retire from, quote unquote, retire from semi-pro racing i mean it's nice to be pat on the back for for racing well but there's not much substance there the the, it's very nice and i appreciate that but Mm -hmm. the value is surface level because it's based on a performance but when you talk about something that you put a lot more time and effort and then meaning into um passing the torch so to speak there's just more weight to that man it's subsurface and that's that's worth its weight in gold for sure yeah yeah the, the performance, they don't have to like you to say good race. Yeah. If they're still listening to the podcast, there's something there that they enjoy. So that was really, it was really encouraging and just kind of warmed the heart. Plus it was like 36 degrees. <laughs> it was freezing. Uh-huh. So all the warmth you could get was necessary. Well, nice. Shall we? 
We shall. We're going to, I don't know how much time we can spend on this. Um, but next, we moved on from the easier recovery runs last week. And this week, like I said, we're breaking it down step by step. And uh, this week is the long run. Now, we have done, I believe, an entire long run episode. Have we not, Bracken? Back in the yes, day, have. I'd have to look. That's not the purpose of today, to go and completely dissect the long run and turn it into an hour uh, monologue, so to speak, about it. We just want to help you understand its place in the big picture, kind of why it's important, um, and just retouch base on it all. All of these fundamentals that we're going to go over, we've touched on in the past and done entire episodes on in the past. Look at this as more of a refresher before we go into, you know, or as we transition into base phase or off-season training. So the long run today is the topic, and maybe we'll give credence to it for about 20 minutes or so. So um, where do you want to start with this one, Bracken? I want to talk about what the long run isn't. Okay. And and I think that there's a lot of fear about the long run, and there's a lot of mis... I don't think, want to say misinformation, but it gets a, a certain reputation. And we talked in the last one, you asked me what some of the mistakes I made early in my coaching career were. And one is that I ignored the long run and I looked down on it. I saw it as a badge of honor that people wore foolishly rather than having a real purpose. But the more you dive into the actual physiology behind the long run, what it does internally for you, as well as mentally, and what it does just as a as like a rounding out piece of a running plan, the more I became a believer in the long run. And then you also have to feel it. People who do long runs just kind of, it's kind of like being a parent or, or, or getting married where people are like, you just, it's indescribable, but once you, you do it, then, then you'll know. And that's kind of how long runs are at a much lesser level that once you felt them for a while, you realize that indescribable benefits of it. So I'll start with the describable though. Of all the benefits of the long run, I can't say that one's any better than the other. No. Like there it's it's not like threshold work or speed work where it has one specific purpose. The long run has a its tendrils are everywhere in your fitness. Would you agree with that? 100%. Well, I very much agree like I think your starting point of like it doesn't matter what type of long run or like how it is approached, I feel like the end result is typically the same. Meaning like ultimately what happens during the long run and why it is important. And for those of you who have done something called the quality long run or a traditional easy long run, oddly enough, the legs sort of end up feeling the same by the end of it. And that is like tired, like your body is still, um, you know, going through impact for the same amount of time. So what that happens is like, one, obviously, no matter if your heart rate's through the roof because you have tempo or threshold work in your long run, or you simply go out there in zone two and, and put your time in on feet, that doesn't really change your time on feet in regards to like how many times your feet impact the ground, your resilience to abrasion goes. And so what I find is no matter the quality of the long run, whether I decide to go pound it or I go easy, my legs still have that sort of like dull ache, want to be done feeling towards the end, especially after 90 minutes for me. And what that does is that moves the needle forward no matter what. It's called resistance to damage. It's called resiliency. It's called staving off when your legs start to take a shit on you in a 5K, maybe another three minutes, which is everything in a 5K. It always translates resistance to impact and resiliency. So like building that up, also you, you could call it stay power, but um, 
no matter how you approach the long run, the point of having it in and getting to that point where you just don't really want to be running anymore. Your legs start to feel like, you know, watered down logs or something. It's kind of the idea. So like, no matter what you do during that time, I feel like I always get to that point. And that's sort of like a point that I think is worth honing in on that you don't have to nail it. You just have to do it. That's how I think. And I think that kind of speaks to the definition, my definition of a long run. A lot of people are like, what is the bare minimum for a long run? And I suppose we could go and make time cutoffs. Like for an untrained runner, 60 minutes is a long run. For a moderately trained, 90 minutes is long. Mm -hmm. And then for long, two hours can be long. But then you start getting into pacing. Like for an elite runner, 90 minutes is you're getting more mileage than a moderately trained runner will get in two and a half hours. So it's just, I like to say that a run is a long run. Once you keep running after reaching the point where your legs no longer feel fresh and easy, yep. like that, that, that point you talk about where at some point they just get dull. Like you, you're running, you're using your normal stride. It takes minimal effort. You're running aerobically. It just feels good. And after a while you think like, all right, this has been, it's been good. And now I'm starting to get dull. Like, boom, that's minute one of your long run begins right there. Yep. That's kind of my definition of it because fitness and experience and pace can really change the definition of long run for people, but you know, when you've run long. Yep. So every long run begins the moment your legs stop feeling fresh and good in my book. I agree. And, and to just kind of dial in on that point a little bit more, like you can replace time on feet. Like let's talk about cardiac and aerobic output. You can replace time on feet with intensity, meaning like you can not time on feet, like, like cardiac benefit. You can replace with intensity. If you can't do long runs, you can train your metabolic system to withstand intense work. And that's super helpful. It's why we do it. But what you can't do is you can't shortcut time on feet to make you more resilient. If all you do is short stuff and all you do is interval work, yes, your metabolic system and your cardiac output, and maybe your VO2 max is going to look pretty dang good. It's going to be, you know, you're going to get yourself halfway there, but your resiliency over long duration, you're going to miss that like impact factor, right? You cannot replace that. And like what I'm saying there is like intensity, sure, it matters at times, but it's like way down the list of importance when it comes to long run. It's just yes. resiliency to impact. Again, you're really reaching your top end potential in a lot of your shorter, faster stuff, but you can't duplicate just the pounding and the pounding of that extra time on feet. Um, which is going to translate, look at you this weekend, man. Like you've been doing, you have not been on paper training for a stadium race yet. You sort of filled up early in the race. And then you were able to just, you were able to maintain because your resistance to impact your resiliency is through the roof right now. And look how it played out in a less than 30 minute race. And so, and you, and, and another case in point, uh, to speak on your behalf is you haven't been doing a lot of quality efforts in your long runs. You just been going out there and grinding it out. And heck, you haven't even been offsetting that with quality workouts in your interval sessions. So like, it just no. goes to show they could create stay power. Yeah. And there's this, there is some research behind this that some people say 40 minutes, some say 60 minutes, but at some point there's a transition. It's almost like aerobic plus you don't go anaerobic, but it's just not easy on your body anymore to just be going purely based off of your aerobic system. And and there's like, it's, it becomes the golden hour of training where everything's worth more, where every minute you do after 40 or after 60, depending on what study you look at and what athlete you're looking at, you just reap more benefit. 
everything has to pull its weight a little bit more. And that is very powerful. It's part of cramp prevention. Part of that's impact resistance. Part of it's muscle fibers. When you go out for an easy run, it does not take a high percentage of your entire strands, all your muscle fibers in there to turn your legs over and hold your stride together. It's a very small percentage that actually has to fire to move your legs through an easy aerobic run. But the longer you go into the run, the more those fatigue and the more they have to call on the associated fibers around them to help pull weight in there. Now you get that same benefit from intensity, mm -hmm. but you don't work them for very long. So like sprinting up, let's say a, a 6% incline, well, probably like a max 20 second sprint will probably, or even a 10 second will get you like 99, hundred percent of muscle fibers engaged if you have good running form and you can pull from everywhere, but you're only doing it for a little bit. But after two hours of running, you're using a way higher percentage of your hamstring, your quad, your glutes than you were at hour one. And so there's actual muscular conditioning that's happening at an easy impact and aerobic level, but that mimics the benefits of actual intense training because it's all happening under duress. Like picture doing a thousand pushups and then trying to bench press your own body weight. It's going to be way harder than trying to bench press your maybe one and a half times your body weight fresh. And that's a bad analogy of how long runs affect your muscle fibers. Well, yeah. And then you combine that with, you know, plugging it into like a, a balanced training program is important. And obviously if you're in an off season build, you're going to do a lot more long work and a lot less short, fast stuff. But like, ideally what happens is that we raise our like threshold. We raise our high end uh, output potential through hard work. And then we get into a race and that long run kicks in because it allows your resistance to impact to actually meet your heart's fitness and your lungs fitness. Mm -hmm. Because half the time what happens is your legs go to shit on you. You're two thirds through the race and you're just dead. Like you're, you're in, you know, anaerobic debt. And also your legs are completely toast and you have no more matches to burn and you're left with zero options. But if you balance things out and you just slowly build that resistance to impact and durability, ideally everything comes together on race day, meaning like, ah, uh, my high end output is good because I've been working those systems and I can just keep beating my legs up to sustain this sort of output because I've been putting so much time on feet. And that's, that's like why this phase of training base phase and why we emphasize that time on feet and the long runs and building those up, because ideally this helps you know, one end of the spectrum, meet the other end of the spectrum come race day. And the more you can build up your resiliency to impact, the better able you're going to be able to hold your high end fitness during a race later. So like when we talk about like the fundamentals, like this long run kind of is the fundamentals to the base to your fitness pyramid moving mm -hmm. forward. It's going to allow that peak to be higher as we've always referred to. And so just think of it that way. And then we can dive into the capillary bed situation and the cardiac stroke volume and all that, that it's going to enhance. But like, I really feel the difference in resiliency and resistance to impact, as I've said a, a couple times now, when it really matters. And that's kind of everything in these races, because the legs end up going to shit no matter how short the race is, right? And so it only helps, whether you're a miler or you're an ultra marathoner. There's an interesting connection between people's form breakdown and how long they train. The more frequently they train, the more their actual like oxygen transport system improves. Like there's some intriguing science out here. A buddy of mine sent this to me the other day, and I've been reading up on it, that newer studies show that there's this theory that in terms, in terms of mitochondria development and in terms of um, 
like red blood cell development. I guess less about less about red blood cells and more about mitochondria and um, capillary bed density. That the vast yeah. majority of the benefit happens really early in the run. Like you go out and start, and it gets right to work, and then it's like single digit percentage after like twenty minutes or something like that. Like it's starting the run that puts that construction work into play. Mm -hmm. But whether you go 20 minutes or 20 hours, you're not getting a way like bigger benefit in terms of the actual infrastructure of your body. And so to that end, doubles make more sense for building that. But what it doesn't touch upon is the resiliency and long lasting approach to your training that the long run gives you. If you didn't have all those things in place, but if you never go beyond 20 minutes, all those systems in the world don't matter if you fatigue out and can't use them. Yep. And so this is the point where a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to go two hours easy because it does this. Well, it might not, but it almost doesn't matter why you're doing it. Like You can think I'm going out here to help my, my capillary bed density, but really you're just helping stay power and cramp prevention. Like It doesn't matter. We get bogged down in these things. So the, the science is interesting, but it almost doesn't matter if you know in this sense why you're doing it as long as you do it. Yeah. And again, that's where it differs from interval work or threshold work. You got to know why you're doing it because you have to fit it in correctly and progress. Long runs are just get them done a lot of the time. Well, and you talk about reducing like after the beginning phase of a run reduced to percentages as far as out, like far as benefit but like aren't we in a sport of percentages yeah like a one percent benefit over a mile let's say is like if you're running a mile in five minutes it's like four seconds or something mm -hmm. or five yeah. yeah let's just call it even more maybe like that's a big deal over a half marathon it might be two or three minutes like sure an extra percentage like actually adds up so sure your return on investment you know physiologically may not look so good or dismal but like heck we're in a game of fractions of percentages yeah and then you talk about like capillary beds being developed and cardiac stroke volume like i touched on this last week in our recovery run episode like what's the purpose well you reach max stroke volume and you just strengthen your heart and make sure it pumps efficiently right so that maybe you can work at a lower percentage of your max for longer same thing goes with the long run except it's just extended and yes the longer you require your body to need oxygen as its main transport for energy that means like, yes, slowly but surely under the hundredth zoom, millionth zoom microscope, maybe the, that extended time on feet extends those capillary beds or widens them like the smallest decimal of any sort of measurable thing, which I don't even know what that would be. Somebody can let me know the smallest measurable length. But however, like that stuff really does happen over time. Like you look at like an endurance athlete's capillary beds from beginning to end of career. And they have fingers spawning off into every little crevice of every little muscle group. And everything's just really efficient at being fed in like the long run. And then those super intense interval sessions are the two that move the needle the most. So like mm -hmm. all the other stuff aside, you're talking about a strong, efficient heart that pumps blood, of blood efficiently, which translates to um, being able to work at a lower percentage of your max for longer. And then it also translates to like those fingers on those capillary beds distributing a little more, which also means like a little more oxygen supplied, which means talking about working at a lower rate of your max potential yet again. So like that's what's happening on a cellular level. And no, it's not like, oh my God, look at how crazy this has changed in my body physiologically overnight. But like start compounding weeks and months and years of this and you look back and you're a completely different athlete. And so that's like the major thing I think on top of impact where we see benefit from the long run. I agree. 
And I'm also a believer, uh, everyone who listens to me knows I'm a big believer in like mental preparation and, and muscle memory and prepping what you need to do. But something I don't talk about as much that maybe I should is that I believe that muscle memory is not like a whitewashing of muscle memory. It doesn't just blanket coat your, your, your systems. I believe you have muscle memory at every level of intensity and fatigue. And I don't have science behind this. And there, maybe there is literature out there to point to it, but I have seen and experienced with myself way too many times where someone who can do something perfectly can't do it at a different level of oxygen depletion Mm -hmm. or at a different level of fatigue where suddenly your hands get really fumbly or your stride breaks down or executing a spear throw is a hundred out of a hundred for you with your heartbeat at 140, but 50 out of 100 when it's at 190. And it's not because you miss, it's because your form actually is wrong, which means Mm -hmm. muscle memory to some extent is dependent on the state in which you practice it. And so holding your running form together is everything in running. If you can't keep your form together and it starts costing you too much energy to keep your form, and we've all felt that in a race, we get to a point where we realize to try to run my good, strong form, it just tips me over. I can't do it anymore. A lot of that comes from getting thousands of reps in at an aerobic effort when you're just fatigued. That staying power of your actual form, the actual mechanics of running, working on that in a long run, in my opinion, is invaluable. Yep. Because like you've said, you can always race down in distance, but you can't necessarily extend up as well. And this weekend, I felt it again. My form stayed together in this race. And the last five minutes of running, I was still running with an aggressive, in my mind, compact, upright, tall, proud form, which I don't often have at the end of hard efforts. And I think it's just because of so many two and three hour hill sessions I have where every time I get to the bottom... I got to get my form back together. And every time I descend, I have to keep my hips underneath me and my form tall. And it's not incredibly intense efforts, but they teach the muscle memory of doing it under duress. Yeah. Staying efficient when fatigued. Which can't be faked. Can't be faked. It often can't be replicated in short, spicy stuff. Can only be replicated when like that dull ache, that underlying fatigue kicks in. When it's like, okay, you have to focus on every little stride. You have to focus on your mechanics. It's just being efficient under fatigue. And that for sure translates to anything you're going to choose to do. So I agree with that. We talk about how you and I can't do super short intervals because of our track background. We can fake them and run them with a stride we'll never use during a race. Yeah. The long run's the opposite. That is your like base zero stride that I'll never reduce lower than this. And if I'm efficient at this and I can go all day on this, I can absolutely race up. Oh yeah. I can go back and look at 400 meter repeat intervals, like which I do from time to time more to stroke my ego and work that biomechanical efficiency. But when I'm not in great shape, I can go look at my results and be like, oh, those are pretty good. It always strokes my ego appropriately. But then like my threshold work or like how a long run goes or a long race goes doesn't correlate at all. Heck, when I'm super fit, I may only run a second per rep faster in 400 meter repeats than when I'm really not fit, but it's all because that's a stride I barely use in a race. But -hmm. yet my metrics, once things get longer, blow my out of shape self out of the water. So I very much agree. I want to touch, um, you know, on how long we need to go and what our thoughts are on that. Um, It's really sort of the one box we still need to check. Like how long is long enough 
I know it's subjective. If you typically run three miles, well, then a five mile run is a super long run. But like, let's talk about the upper ceiling there, um, which again, we've touched on a number of times, but what do you think there as far as upper ceiling, how to approach that off season, in season, doesn't matter. Well, assuming we're all capable of doing the work, I like to look at it by time. And I kind of divide long runs into two categories, 90 minutes and two hours. For me, if I make it 90 minutes, I consider it a long run. Yep, me too. But then two hours and above is a really, is a real long run. So I'll do a decent amount of runs if you look at my Strava between 60 and 80 minutes, right in that 70, 75 range, which is not, I would consider a true long run because you're getting, you're spending so little time at that fatigued point. So I like to cut it off at about 90 minutes is my low end of what a real long run is. Okay. But keep in mind, if you're running one mile, 90 minutes is not your goal. Yep. I like to have it about 20% longer than my regular easy runs for it to be start considering long. Minimum, minimum 20%. It could be a third or a freaking half of your weekly volume in some people's cases if you don't run that much or you're not that frequent. I know a lot of people are like, hey, I run, you know, four to eight miles for my recovery runs during the week just because of time. And then I go and do 20 on the weekend, like whatever pattern you fall into. And I know there's a lot of people who do that. So it's like, it's very subjective, but I think like, um, just feeling that out as you go with the goal to increase it slowly over time is totally safe. 10% ish a, a week is fine, which means like you can go from 10 miles to 11 or something like that, but very subjective. I thought I can see you want to say something, but I thought diving into the high end of spectrum might be, might be helpful as well. Yeah. I, I do just want to talk about what you said. It could be a 50% of your volume. The history of running, coaching, and theory says you shouldn't have a long run that's more than 20 to 25% of your week, weekly volume. I disagree with that. Yeah. And I don't agree with that either. I, I really don't because I think it's less of what the long run is and more about how you recover from it and all your other work. Because by that theory, you could go out and run a hundred mile week. And just do your, what is that, 17 a day, roughly? Mm-hmm. Is that right? I think it's roughly 17. Yeah, something like that. We're not mathematicians on this show. And then go and run a 20-mile run on a weekend, and that falls in the safe category. Are we talking six days a week of running or seven I was talking days six. But let's say six, seven. 16 and a half. Seven, seven days a week is is closer to like 14 and a half, right? Yep. So running 14 and a half every day and then doing a 20 mile long run. To me, that is more dangerous than doing 10 a day and doing a 25 mile long run. Couldn't agree more. And so I, I give way more leniency with the percentage of weekly volume being a long run, especially since we're advocates of non-impact cardio. If you only run four days a week, but you're getting 15 hours a week of volume, you can handle a 20 mile long run. But that would fly in the face of the rule of do not exceed 20 or 25% of your weekly volume. So I throw that out. I'm more concerned about how quickly you progress up through your volume mm-hmm. than I am about what percentage goes to any one given run. And I think we're going to say this to the end of time, but like, is that how the body works? And that means yeah. like, if you can smack it once a week or even once every other week with something very uncharacteristic of your day-to-day routine, like that's going to move the needle further than going out and doing the same eight mile, eight mile, eight mile, and then running a 10 on the weekend. Well, that's not that different than what you're doing on the day to day. So how much change in your body is that going to induce? Not very much. And with, if it's done in a safe manner, like I actually think the long run should be a larger percent of your 
yeah. um, percentage of your, your weekly volume based on like all the things we just talked about, resistance to impact, resiliency factor, capillary bed production, cardiac stroke volume, like all of those things, like you're just going to see that needle move further if there's a bigger discrepancy in your long run compared to your typical daily runs. And maybe that means only doing a true long run every other week, which is totally fine. Should still move the needle for you. But, but where does stress fractures come from? One big effort or multiple efforts? Oh, multiple. It's just a little chink out of the armor slowly, but surely. Yeah. So anyways, I don't want to go too far into that, but I thought it was worth addressing because I know a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to exceed 25% of my weekly volume. High end, high end long run. I typically cap normal long runs at two to two and a half hours. Typically two. My most common are 90 minutes to two hours. Mm-hmm. Two and a half is a normal long, it like high end of long run, but I don't know if I've prescribed outside of Ross Weimer, who had to do a four hour run because he'd never run an ultra before and he had to feel it. I don't know if I've actually prescribed longer than three and a half hours for a, for a runner in a long time. Neither. Three hours, I think, is the longest that it makes sense to go three and a half if you really need to find something out. Yeah. But 90 minutes to two hours is still my sweet spot. And maybe once in a while, if you if only this is the exception only if you have a really long race on your calendar getting out and putting more time on feet just so you understand how your body works fueling uh how the shoes wear but yes we beat this to it you know with a dead horse and we talked about this with ian hosick not too many weeks ago but like three three and a half hours you're going to see no return on investment as far as physiological change so like i cap them at three for most of my athletes and if you have longer stuff coming up like the more and more i coach and the more and more i like dive into how athletes respond. I become a, I'm become a big fan of the split double, which might mean like, you know, we talk about back-to-back long runs. We don't need to get into that, which is a, a valid and somewhat documented way to go about for an endurance athlete. But I like the split doubles in the sense where you might do something shorter and intense in the morning, take a six, eight hour break, and then go back out in the afternoon for two or three. Mm. I just find that moves the needle a little more, still gives you that rest day. Um, and still accrues a good amount of volume if you're prepping for a long race. But we don't need to get too far into the weeds on that. But point being, if you're not sure three hours is long enough for the race you're prepping is what I'm getting at here, you could always add like the split double or the back-to-back, which is proven to move the needle quite a bit yes. for you as well. Just amount, amounting fatigue again and that resistance to impact and then having to recover from that is kind of what it's about, especially if you're an ultra person. So, um, But still, I don't see a huge need to go much further than that other than maybe once or twice a year when all you're doing is gear and fuel testing. Yeah. If I'm trying to incite fitness change, I'm not going much past two, two and a half. Yeah. If I'm trying to find information out, you might do a six hour effort, but th- you're not trying, you're not doing it for fitness benefit. You're doing it to find out what does this fueling do for me after five hours? Yeah. And it might look like a two hour bike into a three hour run into a one hour hike. Like it's, you're not gaining much fitness by going past two and a half hours. I I think that even a three, a three and a half hour workout, the amount of rest you need to go in and coming out of it might not be beneficial to you any more so than doing three, two hour workouts over the course of five weeks. Just because the net, the net gain is so minimal. So yeah, I think we agree. 90 minutes to two and a half hours is a good range. Yep. Well, and then you just brought up frequency. It's the last thing I just wanted to touch on with this. I know we're not giving you a ton of info, but we're touching on the bullet points here. And that is um, like how often is often enough for a true long run? Like most of us run the seven day schedule. So we end our week with a long run. Is that the best way to do it or is it not? 
I think in the off season, every single week is totally fine. Agreed. But once you start trying to get real quality work in, and our quality episodes are coming next, yeah. every other week is fine. I agree. And then you start getting into what we'll talk about maybe next week, which is that medium long run. Mm. But in terms of true long runs, Kirk, I think that 14 to 20 day is enough. 14 to 21 days. That's enough. Yeah, I agree. Off season when there's not a ton of intensity always prescribed with the long run, every week is totally fine. It's what I prescribe right now. And then in once racing season comes, I'm a big fan of the every other week. And then that off week is a little more spice maybe a little more intensity, but shorter duration. Um, we're on the same page there. I'm going to pull up my schedule right now, just because I'm curious. You still see me? I sure can. All right. I, over the last, let's, let's just actually see what week I'm at. So I just completed week nine. I have had seven true long runs that were two hours or longer. And I've had four or five, five more that are 90 minutes or longer. Okay. So practically one to one and a half per week because I'm in off-season mode. I'm not really doing quality. Well, and what you're training for, it also makes sense. Yeah. But again, I am a, I'm a low mileage responder generally. I am, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a large person, but in terms of like a, a, the stereotypical runner, I'm a little larger frame. Mm-hmm. I don't have a super fast cadence. So like I'm a, I'm a candidate for avoiding too much impact. And doing seven over nine weeks of two hours to three and a half, I've had no physical issues whatsoever. It's a very maintainable schedule if you don't have a lot of quality in your schedule. But after this, I'm switching to every other week. When you start mixing the two together, quantity and quality, then you Mm -hmm. start to just flirt with the injury and burnout line. Not like you can't get away with it for a short amount of time, but as far as sustainability goes, um, I think that's the way to go. Also, I've been on grass and dirt. Which is helpful. Which is very different. On concrete, two hours is about as long as I will go. Where on trails, I'll go a full three with probably less total pounding than the two hours of concrete gave me. And then I think the last thing I just want to add is, and then I know we've touched on it, but it's just, I don't think intensity really matters, especially right now. You have a tired day and you don't get much sleep, go and run easy. You're going to move the needle just as much if you felt good and went out and happened to make your long run a cut down, for example. Uh, right now, you're still, like I said, like just checking the boxes by being out there long enough. And so uh, at least in this phase of training, it doesn't matter really. If you're having tired, if you're having a tired day, don't force yourself into a certain pace or effort. And if you're having a good day, it's okay to go roll with it once in a while and enjoy the fact that your legs are popping. But either way, I don't see like your end uh, result. Like once we get into the meat and potatoes, the next racing season really changing no matter how you approach them right now. Yeah. So like just find comfort in the fact, like, it's okay to go out and enjoy yourself actually right now once in a while instead of because the grind's coming. Oh, it's coming. Oh, yeah. And the miserable pain cave workouts are coming. So enjoy it right now while you can. That's what I think. I like to tell people on easy long runs, you got to make it an hour before you can make any decision about how your run's going to go that day. Yep. You have to run easy and smooth for an hour. After an hour, if your body's still telling you the same thing it was telling you earlier, which is we feel good today. Yeah, go roll it a little bit. And I like the idea of building towards the end of a long run anyway, just because it's that muscle memory of when I start to fatigue, my form gets better. My form gets stronger. I finish runs. And again, that doesn't have to mean hard, but making that cognizant effort to pick it up, your pick up your form as the run goes on. But my last piece is I want to talk fueling. Kind of a hotbed. Do we fuel during long runs? Do we 
drink water during long runs? Do we carry fuel? I have my take. You have yours. They're kind of similar. I think our time cutoffs are a little different, but why don't you start? Well, I'm going to tell you something that might be cringeworthy. In the off season, if I go out and run easy and I know I'm going two hours, I don't bring anything right now. I'm okay with working a little depleted because I know my effort's going to stay easy and my metrics don't necessarily matter. I like kind of the idea of just dipping into fatigue on like an empty body. Um, however, if I do care about my metrics uh, and I really am hitting it hard, even 60 minutes or more, but for any typical run, especially once I get in season, 90 minutes or more, I start feeling right away at 30 minutes in uh, hundred calories or so per half hour. But uh, like I said, sometimes I just like not carrying water and not carrying fuel going out and purposefully running fatigue for the last 30 minutes, like knowing that I'm a little on E and hoping that somehow that moves the fitness needle a little bit for me as far as resiliency when tired. Um, some people may think that's taboo. I mean, I hear Lindsay Webster do it all the time. She doesn't take anything on her long runs at all and then only feels during races. It seems to work out okay for her. So um, you could go both ways on that. What, what is your take? Same kind of thing. If I'm in the off season and there's no real purpose to my run, I don't feel the need to carry anything. Yep. But there's also no conclusive research to show that you truly gain any, any energy saving ability of fat adaptiveness or becoming more efficient with your fueling by running long runs fasted versus running them fueled. Yep. There's really no conclusive evidence, which means if it's not better or worse for you, other than psychologically, which is super powerful, if I'm in season or if I need to, like you said, if metrics matter, I fuel my long runs. Same. Because I want to recover afterwards. I don't want to be paying for my long run for a week and be compromised. If I'm anywhere near a race, I'm fueling from probably 40 minutes on on my long runs. But if it doesn't matter, like I did a, I did a two and a half hour workout the other day on the hill without any fuel. And I did an 80 minute workout on the hill the other day with fuel yep. just because of the purpose of the day. So I do not begrudge anyone water on long runs. There's no reason not to. I don't care what anyone says. Taking gels in a long run will not change your status as a fat adapted athlete. It just is not going to change. I agree. So if you have a purpose for doing one or the other, that's all that matters. I agree. I share the same sentiments. I just know that on your usual ones, you'll actually fuel earlier than I will. Yeah. I spent, well, once, once I have races on the calendar, for sure I will. And anytime I chase vert, like my cardiac drift going uphill, no matter how easy I try to keep it, it's just pretty severe. I feel like maybe more than most. And so like, I know my heart rate's dipping a little higher sometimes. And on those days, like if I'm going up, I'm fueling early because I know what my body tends yeah. to do and respond that way. But um, semantics, like I said, some of the best in the sport, like don't fuel on long efforts, but do fuel during races. And to touch on that fat adapted thing, like <laughs> if you're not taking care of the other 22 hours of your day, approaching your nutrition fat adapted, a uh, small snippet during during your workout isn't really going to change your like metabolic needle that way. It, it may get you used to running tired and feeling like shit, which also may then perspectively in the race, when you do give yourself fuel, you're like, Oh, I feel good today. Like maybe that's worth its weight in something, but that's still like the jury's out. You know what I mean? Like that's just going to yeah. be such a subjective measure that we can't recommend it. Um, at least I can't with the sound, yeah, sound principles. There's arguments both ways. I've even heard people recommend that you should be taking gels during interval workouts to top off your glycogen stores so that you're able to work at the best possible percentage of your, mm -hmm. of your pace for each one of those. Since your goal is not to run depleted, it's to deplete, recover, and do it again. Right. So, they, I mean, in Colorado, I used to do all my efforts with nothing. 
I'd come back just like a shriveled up raisin. I do two, three hours just smashed at altitude in the mountains. I'd still fall apart at 60 to 70 minutes of a hard race if I was burning hot. So at that point, I just started using fuel on that stuff so I could train again the next day. And so my body was better at handling taking fuel in at 60 and 70 minutes of a hard race. So, Yep. I agree. All right. Sweet. That's it. That's all we got. I know it's not flashy, but that's why this is called the fundamentals, folks. Just getting back to basics, reminding you of those little things as you approach the uh, non-glamorous phase of training. You know, these non-glamorous topics are the foundation and the fundamentals of what we do and build next season on. So um, I think we covered everything we need to without, you know, really diving in too deep. If you're curious, you know, you can go back and listen to our podcast on the long runs where we dissect all sorts of things with it. But I think we hit the boxes, man. Yeah, go listen to that one. And this is a good companion piece to that. All right. Another coach's episode on Friday, right, Bracken? Yes, sir. High school coach this time, which is going to be an interesting and different take you know, molding young minds um, and, you know, preparing them for longevity in this sport instead of burnout is going to be a topic we're going to chat about. So, Which is going to be great carryover because so many of runners are new to running at in the middle of their life. Yep, exactly. And you're essentially a high schooler at 30 or 40 or 50. Yep, starting, starting from scratch puts you at the same place no matter how old you are. Um, all right, folks. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you again Friday. Mm-hmm.